This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, Dim Suan. This year, we held our annual Health and Living Life event on the 14th of October, where we looked at ways to disrupt aging, from maintaining brain power to staying fit and being financially prepared. On today's show, we're playing an edited version of the second panel session where T. Shaoik moderated the discussion on brain health with consultant geriatrician Dr. Sinikati Abdul-Haki from Pantai Hospital Kuala Lumpur and neurogeneticist Associate Professor Dr. Azina Ahmad Anwar. Here's the first part of that panel discussion. Uh, I think earlier in my welcome address, I, I just talked about how you know I feel that health should be about feeling good now and being able to perform as well, and many of us are uh, in, no matter what phase of our lives we're in, there are specific demands that life puts on us uh, mentally. So if I could uh, throw this question to you, Dr. Zlina, uh, what gives us an edge um, in terms of our ability to focus, right? And, and, and so many of us are talking about this thing called brain fog. So what gives our brains that edge when it comes to all these cognitive abilities that we need? Focus, memory, um, having creative ideas. And um, can our brain actually develop much more? How much more can we push it to achieve all this? Sure. Um, so that's a good question. That's a great question. Uh, so I think um, how much... Maybe I'll start with the second question first. Um, how much can we push our brain... So I think this saying that the, we only use 10% of our brain, actually, that's not true. And, um, but they, they always use that to sort of say, oh, we're only using 10% and think of what you can achieve if you, if you use the remaining 90%. Actually, we're already using our brains to quite a large capacity, but it's also how we're using that brain, right? So one example, for example, uh, Einstein when Einstein passed away, you know, people thought that well, what was it about his brain that made it so that, that made him a genius? And they counted the number of neurons, and they thought that he would have exponentially, you know, greater number of neurons. But in fact, it wasn't. In fact, he had more or less the same number of neurons. But what he Phew. had was he had a thicker bridge in between the two hemispheres of the brain. So you know, you have two hemispheres, and there's actually a bridge. It, it's it's called the corpus callosum. So actually, um, Einstein had a much thicker corpus callosum. And that was how he was able to link information and to, to maximize right, the, the use of his brains because he was able to connect uh, you know, the visual cortex on the right-hand side with you know, the, the thinking process that ha happens on the left, for example. So I think that, that is how we could um, maximize our brain use in a way where whenever we're sort of thinking of something or trying to work out a problem, we need to try to use as many angles to get to that solution. Um, imagining, you know, um, speaking it out, writing it down, you know, use as much of your brain. And that is actually what's going to give the edge rather than just sort of trying to solve the problem using only one method. 
Yeah. And uh, does that tie into this concept of how much of our brains we use, you know, that myth about <laughs> using only 10% of our brains? Yeah, no, well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so we can use more, we do use more. We do use more already. Like, even when we think that we're just sort of sitting and not doing anything, actually, our brain is, there's a lot of sort of ticking over that happens, you know, like controlling our breathing and heart rate and all the um, uh, control of regulating the hormones that need to be released at certain times of the day so that we feel sleepy uh, and so that we and then at night you know when um, certain hormones need to be released so that we will wake up the next day um, so all that even when we're sleeping all that is still happening in our brain mm -hmm. so definitely more than 10% all know. right so we are using our brains um, you know common sense maybe it's something else <laughs> um, so Dr. Cathy Dr. Zlina talked about how maybe when we're approaching problems it's about trying to be creative and therefore then you're using as much of your brain as possible but how about if we're looking bigger picture at our entire lifestyle and everything we do what are the lifestyle factors that impact our brain health and fitness I think uh, a, lot, a lot of our lifestyle uh, affects the way our brain functions. So, um, as we see now in our 30s and 40s, it's very easy to fall into this trap where we're inactive, we're not doing new things in our lives, not challenging our brain. When I was about 10 years old, one day I came across my brother and then suddenly I told him, you know, old, he's significantly older than me. I said, old dogs don't learn new tricks. And then he looked at me, don't you ever say that again. And I was like, okay. And then 34 years later, it suddenly struck me, actually, I understand where it's coming from. <laughs> I think we should never sell ourselves short. And there's all these things that we can do to keep our minds sharp as we grow older. I mean, being physically active, exercise is extremely important because not only are there a release of uh, feel-good hormones for the brain as well, but when we exercise, there is a complex interplay uh, of the brain you've got multiple cognitive uh, domains of the brain and functions of the brain. So you squeeze. So you're not only working the muscles of, of your hand or your legs, but you're also squeezing the most important muscle of all, which is the brain. And then also um, trying out new things, learning new skills. So back to what I was saying about learning new tricks, about, you know, even now, I'm trying to learn music and I'm trying to learn swimming and, you know, I'm trying to keep myself... Because my, my, what I'm seeing is that as I'm treating older adults, um, my, my patients, are, a majority of them are past 65 and in their 80s and their 90s. And I see the ones who age well and maybe age not so well but could do better. And then I can see how their health has affected them, their jobs, their occupation, their experiences, and where they've come from and where they are now. And I find the ones who constantly challenge themselves into learning new, new things, even in their 70s and 80s, they start learning line dancing, they start to go for hash runs, they travel, they join the YMCA, they participate in activities. And you see that their minds are constantly active. They're, Dr. Azina was saying this morning of people who volunteer a lot, and you see their minds are constantly engaged. Uh, I find that um, having good emotional uh, well-being is extremely important. Having a very pro uh, supportive life partner, coming in an environment where even if you don't have a life partner, but family and circle of good friends, 
all this helps with the general mental health as well. Mm, so that really widens um, the perspective to include your social connections, your community. Coming back to individuals, Dr. Azlina, sleep. And I think that's something that we take for granted and how important it really is linked to the brain. Can you tell us a bit more? Yes. So um, I think... As you said, you know, we always think that we can catch up on sleep, but, you know, you've got an assignment or a deadline and you'll work through the night and then I'll just sleep the whole weekend and catch up. But actually, um, research has shown that um, even just missing... So, every night, okay, every night you should get around about seven hours of sleep. And it's really important as well for that sleep to happen at night, not sort of for you to stay up the whole night and then sleep during the day. Because actually, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, our brain uh, releases certain hormones and those hormones are sort of pre-programmed pre to be released at certain times of the day, right? So the, to get the best effect of those hormones, you actually need to sleep at night, okay? So research has shown that if you... Uh, miss even one night of sleep, that that actually can contribute to, uh, to an increase in the number of these sort of harmful deposits that can accumulate in your brain. So these harmful deposits, uh, maybe you've heard of it, uh, they're called uh, beta amyloid. They're very famous uh, in Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia. So um, people who, and it used to be thought as a pathological hallmark, hallmark of Alzheimer's, but in fact, actually, um, even elderly people who, ha who don't have dementia or Alzheimer's also can have beta amyloid. But the thing about beta amyloid is that, of course, the more you have it accumulated in the brain, then the more harmful it could potentially be, right? So the research showed that if you lose one hour nights of sleep, even just one hour night, you know, that, that's really worrying. <laughs> um, that, that it could kind of, you know, add up gradually, right? So of course, you know, now, now and again, all of us sort of miss here and there, you know, you have a bad night's sleep or you, you're worried about something um, or you have a deadline, as I mentioned. But it's sort of what is worrying and what should be avoided is sort of chronic lack of sleep, right? Chronic lack of sleep. Especially as well, actually, during sleep, um, our brain cleans out all the wasteful products that, are, that accumulate during the day. So, and all those wasteful products are just sort of things that happen naturally. You know, as we're sitting here, our cells are metabolizing and they're kind of making side products that need to be removed. And um, what happens is at night that happens. So you can imagine a little bit when you're sleeping, your brain is kind of going through this like little washing machine cycle. It's kind of going shh and it cleans out all the sort of, you know, accumulated um, product, waste product. And then um, it enters the uh, spinal cerebellar fluid or the CSF. And then you, in the morning, you know, you urinate it out, right? So that's kind of how the body works. It cleans it through the night. You're urinating the waste from your brain. Absolutely, cells. yeah. Oh. So this um, is groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> so one analogy that I always give my students is it's like DBKL. You know, if DBKL or you know the waste management, yes. if they don't come and clear your waste, you know, over time that will accumulate. So it's the same if you don't sleep over time that waste will accumulate in your brain, and gradually um, your cells will just get so full of that waste and also the surrounding space around them will also get so full 
And on top of it, your, your cells are also aging. So there will come a point where they just cannot deal with the waste anymore. And mm. then that's when you get the sort of slow degenerative process that happens over a number of years. Stay tuned, we'll be right back with more from the second panel session of Health and Living Life 2023 right here on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su-An. Here's the continuation of the edited panel session of Health and Living Live 2023, where consultant geriatrician from Pantai Hospital Kuala Lumpur, Dr. Sinikati Abdul-Haki, and neurogeneticist associate professor Dr. Azdina Ahmad Anwar talked about maintaining good brain fitness. And uh, what about, uh, what are you seeing among your patients and people you, you meet, Dr. Cathy, you said there are some who age well and don't age well. With regard to uh, use of devices and screen time, and I know there can be pros and cons to that, um, what would you say uh, would be the impact of devices on our brains? So there's a lot of research that has shown uh, the impact of devices, even among children, and now we're starting to see in older adults as well. It's not Traditionally, we always thought that a lot of children would spend a lot of time playing video games or looking at their phones, but now that trend is changing. A lot of older adults in their 40s, 50s are uh, Instagram warriors and also secret TikToks, uh, TikTokers <laughs> at night, you know. I've got uh, aunties who, who secretly send messages on Twitter and giving their political opinions on things, but they say, don't worry, it's under a pseudonym, nobody knows who I am, they can't track me. So, and, and they are pounding away at, at these keyboards at night. And this is artificial, the light that we, we are exposing ourselves into. So sometimes we might go into the room of our aunts and uncles or our moms and dads, and they're 70 years old, and the, the room is so dark. But there'll just be two lights glowing, and you're just them staring at their WhatsApp. I'm very busy. I've got to answer all my WhatsApps before I go to sleep. But we have to understand that this light that we're exposing ourselves to is artificial. It's hyper-stimulating our frontal cortex. We're not allowing our brain to go into that sleep which it needs to rest. Sleep is actually gold. It's actually priceless. And we should look after it very well. The peak time to sleep, we know, is between 10, 10 p.m. to about 2 a.m. in the morning, which is when the, the mind, like Dr. Azlian is saying, is DBKL, it needs to be cleaned out. The, 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 the brain needs to patch up our neurons, which are defective, and then improve on the insulation of our nerve cells. It's almost like a librarian. We fortify our memory. So we have all this memory that we've accumulated during the day, and we want to store it into the appropriate bookshelves. So you need to let the brain time to organize it, to take this memory, associated with some old memory, so we retain the memory well. So it needs time to do all this. But if we don't allow our brains to rest and we keep it hyper-stimulated all the time, and then we also know that artificial light uh, exhausts our melatonin reserves. So as we grow older, we find it harder and harder to fall asleep. And it's quite a common complaint among my patients who present to my clinic. Either they've got two things. Either one, um, they find it difficult to initiate sleep. Number two, difficult to sustain sleep. And then I've got another group of patients who have got cognitive impairment or dementia. They can't sleep at all and their body cycles are all reversed. But that's a different story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I have a question here on Slido that uh, linked to this idea of uh, reducing or clearing out the waste when it comes to regulating that sleep pattern and reducing harmful deposits. So 
if we have had this um, pattern already or this trend of uh, lack of sleep, how long uh, would it take to sort of um, regulate and get things back into normal mode again, get DBKL back up and running, you know? Um, well, there's no, I suppose, no one time frame for everyone because uh, everybody, you know, has slightly different physiology, slightly different age, for example. Um, there hasn't really been any research to show um, how, so if you want to reverse that, basically, I'm guessing that's what the question is, that you, yes. you've had, you've sort of lived your 20s and your 30s in a sort of very fast and furious way, and you're a little bit worried about the amount of beta amyloid deposits that you have in your brain, and what can you do now to sort of erase that? Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, there's no eraser that you can go in and kind of wipe them out. But what you can do, of course, is to, to stop the risk of any more accumulation coming, you know? Um, and, and I think that sort of moment of self-reflection, and, and we were talking about this earlier before the session, that, um, you know, there, there never is a time that is too late. So even if you feel that you've had really bad sleep for the last 10 or 20 years, um, actually, and now you, after hearing this, you want to, to change, please change, you know? Um, there isn't a pill, there isn't a drug that can kind of go in and target beta amyloid deposits, of course. So, so the earlier you start to improve your sleep hygiene, I think that's the term that they use nowadays, um, the better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, remember that you know, our brain has billions of neurons. And actually, when a person comes to clinic with um, symptoms uh, suggestive of Alzheimer's or suggestive of Parkinson's, you know, a large portion of the neurons have already died at that time. There, there was actually a study that showed for Parkinson's, by the time a person starts showing slowness of movement and tremor, about 70% of the neurons have died. And that is sort of also partly why when you try to give medication at that point when the person already has the disease, it's very difficult to treat because they're only left with 30%. And those 30% are all already on the way out as well, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why even if over the 10 to 20 years you have had uh, beta amyloid deposits, you know, out of the entire pool of neurons, there are still many, many you know, hundreds of millions of neurons that potentially are not yet affected that you can then stop, you know, or, or, or reduce the chances that you can get beta amyloid accumulation in them. Mm. So it's never too late. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, you, you, you can't, can't really reverse. reverse. Yes. And if they already have it, uh, there isn't a sort of treatment or easy way or lifestyle hack or anything like that that you can go in and, and reduce. You can stop it from increasing further. Very alarming for me, but also a wake-up call for all of us. Um, the question in front here. Hi, uh, morning. This uh, question is to Professor Azarina. Uh, you mentioned seven hours of sleep. A person usually sleeps around 11, 12. You sleep seven hours, you sleep until 6, 7 in the morning. Is there a difference if the person sleeps 3 p.m. Uh, 3 a.m. in the morning daily and then wakes up around 10, 11, compared to if you sleep the usual 11, 12? 
Yeah, okay, that's a great question. And I always get asked that by my students. <laughs> um, because I, I do this sort of thing where I ask the students, and, and you know, students at university and youth, I think, in general, have an alarming uh, sleep cycle. You know, they go to sleep at, at, at 2, and then they wake up, you know, five, 15 minutes before the next lecture, and they come. Um, um, so they said, well, can I just you know, reverse and sleep during the day or sleep at different times as long as it's in a seven-hour block. Um, so it probably isn't ideal, right? Because actually our brain has, is programmed to just respond to daylight and sunlight. And that is sort of what regulates um, the, the, the kickstart of, you know, the release of hormones that will regulate your physiology through the day, Right. So if you are sleeping from 3 a.m. to 10 a.m., then actually your brain is not getting that early morning light. We don't realize it, but we, our brain responds to changing wavelengths of light through, throughout the day, and that regulates uh, hormone release, etc. Right? So that's why, like, you know, we have, most of us have bowel movements, regular time of day. You know, we, we feel sleepy more or less the same time of day because we respond to that wavelength, right? And our brain has been primed to, to react to that. So if you shift that sort of uh, sleep time, then your brain is, is kind of a little bit out of sync, you know? Um, and, and in fact, you know, they have shown people who work on shifts and also jet lag, you know, because if you imagine jet lag is also something similar like that where you're not really sleeping, you know, at your local time. And, you know, how groggy do we feel with jet lag, right? <laughs> so if you don't sleep in that sort of 12-hour cycle, sunset and uh, sunrise, right? then it kind of doesn't really fit into the normal physiology that happens. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's so important that, you know, when we, when we work with um, laboratory animals, it's actually a requirement for us to make sure that the animals get 12 hours of light and 12 hours darkness. Um, and if not, we don't get um, the approval to do the work. So it, that's why it is important, that sort of response to the normal changes of light. Um, is important for our physiology. I think it tells us something. Lab mice are getting better sleep, <laughs> or at least those better um, regulation of those better cycles. <laughs> yeah, um, Doctor Kathy, a couple of questions here about melatonin. Uh, some people are taking melatonin to help themselves sleep. Uh, is it harmful? Or is it beneficial at all? So, medications and drugs are a hit and miss. If we have a deficiency in a particular hormone or a particular neurotransmitter inside the brain, then taking it might help replenish what's already lacking. So as we grow older, we know that uh, the melatonin production starts to go down. We need the production of melatonin to push us into sleep. The peak of uh, the melatonin uh, level starts to rise after about 3 p.m. and then starts to peak around 9 p.m. and then slowly starts to push us into that sleepy sleep cycle, makes us sleepy and drowsy and go to sleep. But there are a lot of us as well who, after a certain time or certain age, are unable to sleep. And then we seek out this kind of herbal remedies or melatonin, for example, to see whether it helps. And for some of my patients, it does help. It does help them to go into sleep. But again, it's a hit and miss. It's not a one solution fix all. Long-term use? Long-term use. Um, there is some uh, concern about the long-term use of melatonin. So the 
the general rule of thumb is about two to three months of initiation of therapy and then slowly to taper off. But within those three months, you hope that the patient will take other lifestyle measures and try to put in other things into place to help them to go to sleep better. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, earlier, Dr. Azlina talked about how, you know, we tend to do this, right? In our 20s and 30s, we're just pushing ourselves to that limit. And I think uh, stress is something that we sort of, we're willing to accept during that stage in life as well because you think that's part of building up your career and, and getting ahead. Um, but Dr. Cathy, chronic stress and not mitigating it um, over a long period of time, what's the link between that and neurodegenerative diseases? So, uh, back to what Dr. Azina was saying earlier about, you know, we all have gone through this when you were in 20s or when you were teenagers, we could just stay up all night and then the next morning you still fresh and you still function and go to class. And that's because our brain has got plenty of reserve when you're younger. But when we try to do the same all-night bender when you're in our 40s, we find we can hardly get out of bed anymore. So that reserve is not there because we know as we age, our neurons, the numbers of neurons, are, we are losing neurons as I'm speaking now, I'm probably losing neurons in my brain. So the number of neurons in our brain starts to go down as we age. Um, but um, when we grow, if we don't look ourselves now, so what's happening now is in our 30s, 40s, 50s, we're in the peak of our careers. We push ourselves really hard to achieve the things that we want to achieve. We want, the, uh, we want to uh, maybe possibly achieve financial success. We want to achieve professional success. We want to achieve success in our families, with our spouses, in our lives. So this drive to push ourselves harder and harder. But sometimes we forget that discipline that's needed to regulate our daily life. And that's when the trouble starts. So you start to see that even the 20-year-old who doesn't get sleep and the 50-year-old that doesn't get sleep overnight, and you can really tell if the 50-year-old hasn't had sleep overnight, but you can see the 20-year-old, she didn't sleep overnight, she's still fresh and bouncy the next morning, but the 50-year-old, you can see, suddenly you can see the eye bags building under the eyes and then you start to mask it with a bit of makeup or you do some facial massage to get it off. This all, um, this all tells us that we can't cope as well, so to manage this, we need to be disciplined. And that discipline includes, uh, it's only not only one domain or one approach, it has to be multiple. Uh, so discipline to sleep on time, discipline to exercise regularly, watch our diet, and then um, find good social support, manage our emotions, all this comes to play. Managing this, managing this helps mitigate our stress. And, once, and we know now there's a complex interplay between stress and hormone release and the effects that it told that it takes on our bodies. And then you can see people who are burnt out, who are unable to focus, unable to perform, then they start to get cardiac-related issues. You can see that as well. Mm. So managing stress is extremely mm. important. Dr. Zilina, similar to the build-up of the beta amyloids, um, does the impact of chronic stress, is it also irreversible? bit tricky to answer that one. Um, so I, I was thinking of sort of relating the stress to also gut health, you know, because actually when you, um, if you think through sort of when you're very stressed, most of the time you're not eating very well, right? And, or you're, you know, you're either not eating or you're not eating very well, you tend to just grab whatever, you know, processed food, whatever is easy. And that will, of course, have an impact on your gut, right? And one of the other things as well that is harmful about stress is that if it is affecting your gut, 
then that is also going to have a knock-on effect on the brain as well. Because if your gut isn't feeling, is, you know, if your gut health is um, affected, then the, the, the physiology, you know, it's not really the bacteria that are in the gut are going to start, you're not going to get a good population of the good bacteria, and so then um, you're not getting the, the right, you know, metabolites or products that are coming from the, from the bacteria in your gut to help with your overall wellness. Mm. Yeah. Dr. Zelina, there I know you are working or you're familiar with some research that's going on studying the gut microbiota of older adults as well and to, to sort of study that link with the ageing process. What has the research found? Yeah, so actually this is um, building on work that uh, also my colleague Prof Kala and uh, Dr. Steven, they're, uh, they're part of the booth outside on gut health. Um, and there was actually, we did a, a show, I think with Sue Ann um, on BFM, a recording, you can catch it on the podcast where Dr. Uh, Prof. Kala talks about her research. So she is um, mainly the, the one driving it here um, under a multi-center um, national project that we have looking at um, the elderly population in Malaysia. So we're looking at many different parameters, one of which is trying to understand uh, our elderly population gut health. And so um, she has some wonderful anecdotal stories of people who send in their stool, right, to be analysed, and her lab uh, is able to profile all the different bacteria that you can find in that stool. And she can relate, even just by looking at the profile of the bacteria, back to the health of that person. So, for example, um, she, she has a story of a, um, a sample that she got with, you know, one of the very, very low numbers of the good bacteria and very high numbers of the, you know, harmful bacteria. And of course, then, you know, she, when she then met the person, she found out that uh, that person had, you know, really chronic uh, bowel problems. Um, and then you have the, the reverse where you, can, you get a sample with a stool of very, very nice, you know, the, 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 the good bacteria, which is one of which is a, a lactobacillus, you know, very nice profiles, very high amount, very lots of uh, diversity as well. Because in our gut, it's not just about having one type of bacteria. Actually, you need to have a diverse population. So in the recording that we did, you know, we kind of related to imagine that you have a, a flower, a garden of flowers, right? So actually, you want to try to encourage your gut to also have this sort of diversity, the same colour, colourful sort of flower garden and, and many different types of bacteria contribute differently to your body. You know, like actually some bacteria actually uh, produce um, neurotransmitters, right? Um, so not just in your brain there are neurotransmitters being released, but actually even in the bacteria in your gut are, released, are producing neurotransmitters um, which then relayed back to your brain, right? So it's really important to maintain this diversity. And that's where then, you know, the importance of diet comes in, in the elderly. And, and as I mentioned, when you then try to relate the, the good, uh, you know, uh, gut profile, you find that these people have been, you know, uh, looking after their diet well, um, exercising regularly. Um, and really, you know, it just sort of everything fits in, you know. Mm. Everything is related to each other. You mm. can't just look at gut health on its mm. own. 
and just focus on diet. No, you actually have to also do all those other things as well. Stay tuned, we'll be right back with more from the second panel session of Health and Living Life 2023 right here on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. You are listening to an edited version of the second panel session of Health and Living Life 2023 with consultant geriatrician from Pantai Hospital Kuala Lumpur, Dr. Sinikati Abdul Haki, and neurogeneticist associate professor, Dr. Azlina Ahmad Anwar. Dr. Kati, um, is it too early for somebody in their 20s or 30s to be thinking about neurodegenerative diseases like dementia? I think it's never too early. I think we should even be teaching about kids in school, in primary school, about how to look after themselves, how to develop healthy diets, how to exercise regularly. Dr. Azina, we were speaking outside and she found the super agers, the ones who age really well in their 80s and 90s are still physically active, don't have much in terms of cognitive impairment. They've been active throughout their lives. So as I was mentioning about how they were representing their school or their district or they're regularly active in games or sports, they, uh, they are outdoors. So telling, telling kids, like in the UK, they've got this Jamie Oliver programs where they teach kids about how to uh, maintain a good diet. They started looking at the diets that were being served in school and they found they were too high in fats and, 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 oil, and oil. So they started to change the menus to make it more healthy. So I think when we start this movement of growing healthy and inculcating it into young children, this becomes part of their lifestyle and they carry this kind of lifestyle uh, throughout their adulthood. It becomes much more easier. Then it's not that when you're in our 40s and 50s, we're just trying to drastically, trying to start to reduce our weight, trying to struggle to become physically active, start to try to eat healthily. This should be already imbued into us when we're younger. Mm, that's right. Uh, you mentioned about sleep. I do agree with you that we need sufficient sleep. But how do you account for the better productivity in the colder countries, nearer to the pole, where the summers are so many bright hours and the winters are you know, almost dark? And they work a lot in winter and they are more productive in terms of discoveries and so many things. So is there any evidence other than mice and all that? that it applies to human beings. Of course, they don't hibernate. Yes. I, I was wondering when <laughs> someone was going to ask about the, 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 the northern uh, hemisphere, like Norway and Sweden and, you know, those who work in the Arctic. Of course, the people there have adapted, right? So they probably were born there. They've lived there their whole life. And so, of course, when you are within that environment, your brain can also adapt. But actually, um, the people in the, like Norway and Sweden, they, uh, even though, let's say, they, for six months of the year, uh, the sunset only happens around 11 o'clock at night, but actually, they take steps to darken their house, to keep their house, you know, dark uh, from around about 7 to 8, right? So... Even though outside, if you step outside, it's really bright. But they will, you know, draw the curtains and try to make it still very cosy. 
And in fact, one of the terms, uh, they call it Haigi, Haigi, H-Y-G-A-E, where, you know, whenever you watch these sort of, you know, movies and video uh, movies or films, the, the, the rooms and the living rooms always look so cosy because there's a small light, you know, um, a small night light, you know. But if you walk into a Malaysian home, all the lights are open, <laughs> You know, all the LED lights and, you know, so bright. And I know my, I have this conversation with my husband. He'll be like, no, 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 don't make it too dark because of the mosquitoes, right? But in fact, actually, that is a way that the people are adapting to, to you trying to mimic that same 12-hour light and dark cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So the people who have lived in those areas would have slightly modified their lifestyle and their, um, the way they go about their life, okay? So that they try to reduce the amount of light that they're exposed to even at night. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, then you have uh, the opposite where you get sun, sunrise at about four o'clock in the morning, right, in some countries. But same thing, you know, they will uh, modify uh, their, their houses and they still try to live within the roughly a 12-hour, 12-light cycle. But like I said, you know, they probably have adapted over the years, Mm -hmm. okay? But if we were to go and live there suddenly, then we would initially have a problem, right? Our brain would still feel a little bit jet-lagged. But over time, if you then start to live there, maybe it might take a few months, you know, but gradually you will also, you know, uh, get your brain will also start to adapt a little bit, you know, not that it completely shifts its light dark cycle, but it will start to learn, you know, so it will start to pick up on different cues. Um, and, and in order to still be able to regulate um, the, the body's physiology. The brain is amazing, mm. very adaptable. Yeah. Um, Dr. Cathy, a question here. At what age and what kind of exercises, and it's put in um, uh, quote marks, can someone do to prevent or at least delay the onset of neurodegenerative diseases? Well, um, to answer that, any age is good, but if you're in your 30s and your 40s, then... Uh, a lot of research now shows that uh, lifting weights, even light weights, are very good because a lot of hormones which are released, which are good for brain health as well. And aerobic activities, at least even just going for a walk, at least half an hour, as long as a person sweats in a day, that already is a, is a big thing. We have a lot of tips from the earlier panel session as well, which I think um, everyone uh, can, can sort of uh, try and uh, uh, adopt Maybe I can also add on. Um, in particular, we found that gardening is actually, you know, a lot of people, as, when you retire, you, you have more time to spend in the garden. Um, and, and as you mentioned, you know, we do do some, we're doing some research on super ages, which is a, a, a population of individual, elderly individuals over the age of 80. I think you may have heard that term before where they are doing exceptionally well. You know, they're cognitively fit, physically very fit. Um, and, and if you go and visit their homes, their gardens are just, you know, they, they have wonderful flowers and they really look after it. So there really is something to be said about, you know, um, gardening because it's a lot of lifting, it's planning, you know, and then you go out and buy the soil and, you know, a lot of bending and over. And the emotional benefit you get Absolutely. from it. You know, and, and the reward that you get as well. You know, it gives you a sense of purpose that, you know, I, I, uh, I need to, you know, give fertilizer, I need to water my plants. So it gives you something to do every day. And actually, there was also some research that showed that even in soil, you know, when you, when, you know a lot of people wear gloves. Don't wear gloves. You don't get dirty sometimes. You know, it actually... 
in that soil, you have good bacteria. And that bacteria um, also stimulates the uh, certain release of, you know, release of factors in your brain that could also uh, you know, help in uh, brain health. And the other thing is, well, um, the forest bathing, you know, where you walk, you hike, but, you know, hike through the forest or wooded area. Actually, the research has also shown that there are certain chemicals that are released from plants, phytochemicals, that when you breathe it in, that can also stimulate... So being out in green spaces. Yeah, spending yeah. the breathing, time. it's not just the oxygen, it's actually what is in the air that you're breathing in. You know, like we are always worried about the haze, all those fine particles, but go into the forest. You know, they also have these phytochemicals which you breathe in and that actually will help to stimulate certain, uh, the expression of certain proteins which can be um, uh, really good. So, you know, the Japanese, they always, um, they, I think they, they call it uh, shin, shin, Shinroyuko, I think, or forest bathing. Um, and they are always walking out um, okay. a, around and plants. And not to forget sunlight as well when you're doing yeah. gardening. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that helps to maintain your body clock as well. That's true. And yeah. uh, speaking of things that you can do, um, a couple of questions. I'm going to pick up the one that's uh, got the most votes. It's an interesting one. Does listening to certain sound waves truly help unlock the brain's capability? I don't know. Dr. Zlina, do you? Oh, why give me that one? <laughs> um, I, I think there is some research that has shown okay, um, that sound waves, certain sound waves can help. And um, I, I have read some studies that have indicated, um, for example, um, in, in a kind of religious setting, right? In a religious setting where you, there will there always be certain verses that you have to say. Right? And uh, either, you know, in Christianity or in Islam, also in, in other religions, you know, and, and those verses must be read in a certain way, mm. right? That there's a certain rule. You can't just read it however you like, okay. right? Mm. So people have actually shown that the reading, if you do it correctly of those verses, actually goes in tune with your own natural brain wave. So when you're reading that, you're actually also increasing, you know, the activation of your brain because that reading kind of goes in harmony with your brain waves, you know, your natural brain waves. So um, I suppose there, there, there is some truth in that. Um, also, you know, certain music certain rhythm in music also will help. I think that's where the whole kind of Mozart, Beethoven thing came in. Um, but there, there may be some truth in that. Yeah. Okay, but unlocking your brain's hidden power. <laughs> no, whether or not, you know, it, it helps you go from... Yeah, I mean, whether or not... Can it, we all it, become Einsteins? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it could be the act of engaging and really wanting to make a difference to your learning, um, that is probably what is making the most because you are motivated to do something to increase your learning ability, right? Rather than sort of relying just on music. Mm. Yeah. Dr. Cathy? Yeah, I guess music as well um, unlocks a lot of past memories. A lot of my patients start to reminisce and then it brings these uh, feel-good memories which make them happy and brings a smile to their face. So I think when it comes to music, um, not everybody listens to Mozart, but not everybody listens to grunge music, but, and then not everybody listens to Elvis. It's what tickles your fancy. And if it makes you happy, then why not? Yeah. 
Yes, indeed. Um, any more questions? Maybe I have time for one last question from the floor. Hello. I would like to uh, ask both doctors, uh, what are the effects of interrupted sleep? Say you regularly wake up at 2-something, 3 a.m. I, I suppose that's the best part where you can sleep soundly. And then after that, you kind of take a long time to doze off and maybe sleep another one hour. Any effect on health? Thank you. So, disrupted sleep cycles obviously have an effect on our health. When we are younger, um, medical issues like obstructive sleep apnea, where they have disrupted sleep throughout the night, uh, it breaks their sleep cycle, there's poor oxygenation of tissues that has detrimental effect on your blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, so we know that. But as you grow older, um, a lot of my patients complain, they go to the toilet at one o'clock and then forget it, I'm not going to sleep the rest, rest of the night, I'm going to candy crush until tomorrow morning. So, <laughs> so I can, I, so that, that's very tricky. So what happens is I usually advise my patients to have good sleep hygiene, what Dr. Azini was mentioning earlier, a nice quiet room. And even if you lie down and just put your head to rest, if you can't sleep, at least meditate. At least empty the mind and, and let, in a way, meditation. I've seen a lot of my patients who are older who practice meditation, any forms of any, across any faith, just emptying the mind and, and letting it relax allows the brain to rest and heal. So even if you don't fall asleep, at least the mind rests. So at least some healing can take place. All right. And the last one for the gentleman in front. Uh, thank you. Uh, the role of uh, nutrition, particularly eating ulam, I understand, helps in brain development. Care to comment, please? Yeah, um, thank you for bringing that up. I, I, I am a huge fan of ulam. Um, and in fact, um, I would recommend people eat the local ulam rather than spending your money on blueberries. <laughs> um, I think particularly because, you know, with blueberries, you don't actually, in Malaysia, we don't get them as fresh, plus all the air miles, etc. And they're very expensive. Whereas you can grow ulam in your back garden, grow it organically, you know, pluck it and have it fresh. Um, yes, ulam, the, the, of course, ulam raja is, um, has been shown to have um, great health, brain health benefits. And actually, there is a, a research group here in Malaysia at uh, UKM, Prof. Susanna Saha, um, who has written a lot, actually, on uh, the, the benefits of ulam. Ulam raja, um, selom, down selom, um, I don't know, sorry, the, the English names for all of them, but there's also others like Pagaga, of course, is very famous, you know, Pagaga. And um, one that um, I particularly like, the Sambong Nyawa, very easy to grow um, and uh, not so bitter. Um, yeah, so I would recommend, you know, however you like to eat it, eat it with a little bit of sambal, eat it on its own or whatever, but, but do try to um, in increase the amount of ulam because it's also the, diet, the f dietary fiber as well that you're getting, not just the, um, the, the, you know, the ingredients in there that are helping with mm. the brain health. All right, fantastic. What a great way to um, sort of wrap up the questions from the audience. And to wrap up from each of you, what can we do now, regardless what age we are, to protect our brain health? Dr. Cathy first, perhaps? I think my main advice would be discipline. So, um, I know it's a difficult word. But looking into our life and seeing how we can regulate our exercise, getting adequate sleep, managing our stress, uh, building our social circles, making sure that we deal with stress as it comes along in a, in a way 
that wouldn't impact our mental health and our overall health is most important. And reflecting and seeing how we can improve. That's the best Yeah, I think maybe I'll add on uh, Just keep moving <laughs> I think whatever It's just, you know Have an active lifestyle And through being active That actually then opens up You know, other avenues You will meet people You will develop new interests It will stimulate your mind So it really just Bottom line Just, you know Keep moving That was an edited version of the second panel session of Health and Living Life 2023 featuring consultant geriatrician from Pantai Hospital Kuala Lumpur, Dr. Sinikati Abdul Haki and neurogeneticist, Associate Professor Dr. Azlina Ahmad Anwar. This has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.